What's up, everybody? Welcome to another edition of the Surf and Sales Podcast. I'm one of your two co-hosts, Scott Lease, here uh, with my good friend and co-founder of Surf and Sales and the Surf and Sales Podcast, Richard Harris. What's up, Richard? How are you, my man? Good to see you. It's um, I'm trying to figure out which nickname I'm going to call you today based on your long hair and beard, but... Um... You know, no, I, was, I thought we settled on Lebowski since that's what. Yeah, but then I was looking and I'm looking at this sort of whole JC thing, but I'm not sure if that's appropriate to say anymore. So um, <laughs> conscious to, to that's that. what my that's what my older son's friends uh, apparently call me when I'm not around. Ah, well, that's cool. That's yeah. cool. Yeah, I've made a lot of progress since uh, high school. Yes. Yeah, I still have the same nicknames. I don't know if yes. that's really a good thing or not. We're brought to you uh, today by our good friends at Outreach.io, as well as Scratchpad and Sendoso. They are killer companies, great people, good products for salespeople and sales leaders. Check them out. We appreciate their support in bringing the Surf and Sales Summit and the Surf and Sales Podcast to you. We're brought, uh, brought to you. We already brought to you. We're here today uh with my friend todd bustler todd is the co-founder of a new company relatively new company called champify that is off to a great start and uh he used to be a vp of sales for a long time in fact he was the first go-to-market hire as an ae and then worked his way all the way up from an ae to being a vp of sales so maybe we'll get into some of that what's up todd welcome to the show scott thanks for having me richard good good to meet you likewise well, for context here, let's start with what you're up to right now. Tell everybody out there, what the heck is Champify, what you all do? Yeah, so I'm the founder and CEO of Champify. Basically, what we realized was, you know, over the, my six-year run at Heap and a year spending consulting companies in the unusual venture portfolio that just traditional outbounds getting harder and harder, right? You used to be able to hire someone out of school and say, write these emails and make these calls and getting 12 to 15 opportunities a month was doable and like really starting to see that change. So the idea behind Champify is essentially you have a lot of happy users and people that are already aware and know how your product works and the value it delivers. And the way that companies go about selling to those people again is broken, right? You have a lot of people running these huge Boolean strings in LinkedIn sales navigator, trying to match old company to new company. There's no way to admin that. Basically what Champify does is make it really easy for your reps, AEs, BDRs, CSMs to know where all of your former users and buyers are going to. So you have high likely opportunities to go sell to them again in their new, in their new roles. So wait, so you follow their career change? Is that what I'm hearing? That's exactly right. So okay. you think about tapping into people that have formerly bought or heavy power users of the product, right? What we do is start listening for all those job changes. And then anytime they're moving, right, we'll surface that up to the right owner based on where they're arriving. We help these organizations write different cadences and plays to get meetings. And in general, seeing usually two to three, sometimes four X uh, positive response rate above your traditional cold outbound cadences. That would make sense. I would, yeah, I would, I would hope someone I, you know, sold before would, would be like, yeah, let's talk or at least politely say, no, we're not ready yet. Right. Like, I think that's super cool. Um, then just out of curiosity. So I heard you say help write the cadence or sequence. Now, does that mean you're like an outreach sales loft plus one with the job change or, um, what does, what does that mean just for context? Yeah. 
Good question. Most people just, you know, plug, we surface this data. It's directly in a Salesforce app, right? And then most people from there are taking their lists of arrivals. So Scott's a rep that owns these five accounts. 10 contacts have come into these accounts that have used our product in the past. They're usually one clicking and doing the actual outreach and outreach or sales loft or one of the others. What we do is usually sit down with their best prospectors and frontline leaders and say, hey, what should this messaging look like? Right. It looks a lot different if it's a former economic buyer versus if it's a power user. Right. Mm -hmm. What should that first outreach look like? And usually what we're doing is helping them take what we've seen based on working with, you know, 30 or 40 customers and helping them tweak to match their business. Cool. So how did you I want to go back to like even just the genesis of the idea, because you've had a lot of experience being first rep, getting into you know executive leadership like so many questions um when did you a recognize the problem and b what made you take the leap because it's yeah, one thing so, to see a problem it's another thing to take a leap yeah so i think so i started to recognize this problem probably like 2019 2020 and it really came down to how effective were the SDRs and reps at outbound prospecting in my current role at Heath, right? Like 2016, hire a hungry kid out of school, tell him to say this on the phone or tell her to write this in their cadences. And like, you could pretty predictably get 12, 15 qualified meetings. That number was just going down, especially when Heath was starting to hit 15, 20 million in ARR. So we had a couple things start to happen. One of my co-founders, Stephen Ruff, he was one of the top reps in the commercial segment at Heat. He spent a lot of time um, converting free people to the paid tier. Made, he made a lot of money doing that. But most of his prospecting was after existing customers. So he came to me one day, he said, why are we banging on the door of all these cold prospects never heard of us? We can fill a US football stadium with the amount of people that have already used our product and got adopted. Why aren't we spending more time prospecting into there? So that was really the genesis of the idea. I think we, we started spending time thinking about it. Um, we looked at some other folks in the space and thought we could do a better version. Um, and then I think, Richard, what gave me the leap of faith to go is my role at Unusual Ventures was essentially um, unusual leads a seed round, usually sizable seed round, usually technical co-founders that need help on the go-to-market side. They would drop me in. I would essentially be their head of sales for three or four months, right? This was everything from figuring out who they're going to sell to, recruiting the first design partners, getting the first couple customers, hiring their first rep or two. Right. What I realized, what, what I realized was just doing that outbound was so much harder than when, I, when it was when I started 2015, 2016. So I want to I I pause you there because like, and this is great because this is a, an amazing path that I think a lot of reps don't think about in terms of, you know, building their career and then finding a way to connect with a VC where you get, for lack of a better phrase, an entrepreneur and residence type situation where you get to do what Todd's done. Suppose you don't have that. Suppose, you know, you're talking to someone, some, somebody's got an idea. What would the things be that would make you go, okay, it's time for me to take this, this leap of faith where you didn't have this sort of access to these moments, you know? Yeah, I think there, I think two things. So I answer the question directly. Before I do, I think there's a realization that most salespeople don't have that their skills are super valuable, especially as founders. Like when I first started at Heap, I was the dumbest person in the room. There was four Stanford engineers and I'm sitting there going, holy shit, I could never start one of these companies. 
And then what, when I started to work with more and more founders, they're coming to me and saying, how do I do this? They have no idea how to get customers. Things that seem so easy to you and I and a lot of people listening are extremely valuable. And I think don't take that for granted. In terms of what I would do, Richard, if you don't have some of the VC connections and you're not sure where to go, I think you, you just go and you start to put together, what would this thing look like? Is there a problem for it? And it's not hard to go get 50 meetings with potential buyers and see, is this a thing they would buy? Is this a thing they would even look at? And if you're starting to get that signal, okay, you can take that a little bit further. That's great. I love that. Like, I don't think anybody's ever said it that way of like, have your idea. Don't go crazy. Just go talk to 15 people. Like, just keep it simple. Right. And, and tweak. I assume you tweak along the way, right? Of course, every meeting you're learning and that deck changes or that your messaging to the next person changes. And like, look, if you can't get meetings for people to even talk about your idea, that's signal, right? If all these people are saying, yeah, this seems interesting, that problem statement is something I've been thinking about, or I agree with the trends you're calling out and you're getting meetings, like that's a good sign, that's signal in itself. And then you'll learn how to talk about that idea and make it better every single one of those conversations. I probably did 50 or 60 of these before I said, hey, let's go. Yeah, it's interesting too, because I also think from a sales perspective, it's never talked about this way, right? When we, to your point, we often find a lot of founders who are tech founders, right? And so they, their, their methodology or the path, and correct me if I'm wrong, is often, oh, you know, you know, go build your MVP, what's your minimum viable product, and then get feedback, so to speak. But do you think even those technical founders before they do the MVP actually do talk to people? Or do you think that's maybe a place where they could do better too. I think it's a huge miss by most of the technical founders. I think they go, let me lock myself in a room, go build something. They call an MVP, but they actually build way more than they need to. And then they go, let's go see what happens. And I think that's the wrong way because you don't know and you don't have to have it built to understand if people will find it valuable. So I want to ask one more question based on what you just said, and then I'll let Scott ask some questions. You said they build too much of the MVP. What's the right amount? What is the MVP? You know, it depends on the industry and you know, I got it, but like, what's the overbuild in your mind? Yeah, I think, I mean, when we did it, we had one slide that's like, here's how we envision this working, right? Now people would dig and say, how would this go? And, you know, a lot of the answers were, I'm not sure yet, but this is how we're thinking about it. I've seen founders go and put their head down for a year, sometimes taking money out of their own pocket, whether it's hiring people overseas in their network to build this big thing and think it needs to work perfectly. And the reality is it doesn't. You're just trying to gauge demand at this point, right? So like the minimal thing to me is a screenshot, a mock-up, or maybe a very small, simple application that does one one hundredth of what you know it's going to do. Part of your attitude there and willingness there is a little bit of just the fact that you have a sales background and, and in order to be really good at sales, being a perfectionist is, is going to kill you, kill you. And like B plus a minus off we go onto the next thing is very much kind of the salesperson's ethos. I think so. I think if you worked at an early stage company, like everything's kind of broken and you get comfortable with that. I think the, the only thing I'd add is if you're a founder, you need to learn how to sell. So it doesn't matter if you're an engineer, go do this now, right? Like you're going to have to yeah. sell your investors. You're going to have to sell your early employees. You're going to have to sell your early customers. So get used to just selling your idea and validating that idea because you're going to have to do it anyway. That was a great quote. He said, 
Todd said, everything is broken. So just get comfortable with it. Yes. Yeah. That's very hard for people um, in early stage startups. Either people are there for the first time or people are trying to come from a big company to an early stage uh, organization. So you've been that first go-to-market hire. What do you think sets somebody apart in that role? You're going to have to hire for that role again. So you think back, how do I hire somebody who pulled it off the way I did? Um, what do you think separates somebody there? And, and what advice would you give somebody who's going into that role in that same kind I, of spot? I think the, the quote you just mentioned is like, people have to be comfortable with that. I have a lot of friends that are amazing reps at big companies, make huge money that wouldn't be comfortable with that. You just have to be really self-aware and be like, am I okay with that? Because it takes a different type of profile. I think that's the first component. The second thing is optimizing for people that like learning, that are nerdy and want to go expand the area that they want to learn about. Now, like going back, we made tons of mistakes, but like, you know, I implemented Salesforce. I had no idea what I was doing. What that meant was like, I was on YouTube late at night trying to figure out how do I do this? I was like watching classes and trying to coach myself. And that's why and Scott won't get Salesforce. He doesn't want to spend time <laughs> YouTubing shit. So. Now, like going, going back, knowing what I do now, I would not have done that. And it was like, there's good professionals you can pay for not a lot of amount of money that will just save you tons of time. But I think it's that, that curiosity and wanting to learn that transfers to other components. How do we have the best contracts? Are we structuring these agreements right? How do we set up our initial funnel? So I think the two biggest thing is just a real curiosity to learn that you need to test for because everyone says they want to learn in an interview. And then the second thing is the, the coachable part. I find the best way to do this is basically have them pitch their product to you, give them a ton of feedback and ask them to do it again right away. And you basically see, can they take that coaching on the fly? And they're, they're the two things you're trying to optimize. And then the last thing I think early stage is just getting someone that has done. Um, I don't think the industry stuff is that important. Like, I don't think they need to have come from a competitor. I do think the deal size is important. Mm. Right. Like if you got someone who did 500K deals and you're doing 10K, it's just a completely different motion. And I think so much stems from that. That's another thing that I think is a must have in the beginning. Do you think that you can take somebody who's, who's from smaller deal sizes and faster sales cycles and teach them how to sell larger deals and a longer sales cycle easier than you can take somebody who comes from a big average contract value and a long sales cycle and teach them how to sell smaller deals in a faster sales cycle? I think for the first hire, you shouldn't gamble on that. However, what I think is easier is to go from uh, smaller to big than it is going to big to small. Because like when I was at Heap in the early days, I did like 50 transactions in one year. If you get someone who's used to doing four and a half transactions every year, it's just a whole different way you organize your day. It's a whole level of being on, it's different operational rigor. And like, honestly, people will disagree with me, but I think doing a 250K deal or a $1.5 million deal is not that different. Well, I'm not going to disagree with you. So <laughs> no, I'm not either. People agreeing, just... with, agreeing with everything you just said right there. I was yeah. just curious your opinion on it. I was baiting you to see if I was going to <laughs> I'm sitting here about, I'm typing in the chat to Scott, like, oh, you're setting them up. <laughs> <laughs> well, he answered it, uh, you know, the way that I, that I agree with. Uh, Todd, like, you passed the test. Scott would hire you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, perfect. You're hired. Now, what so, about what about being in the VP of sales seat prepared you for being a better founder? 
there's not enough founders, in my opinion, that come from actually sitting in the VP of sales chair for a little while and then move to founder dumb. So yeah, talk about I think that. there's, I think there's a couple things. I think, I think the first thing is realizing what you want to do. And I don't think a lot of people think about that. I never did. I was like, oh, this tech sales thing, you can make a lot of money and you don't have to work till, till 11 PM. Like my friends that were in banking, make a lot of money and there's unlimited upside, right? So like, that's why I initially got into this. Uh, and on, I was like, stop right there. Did you really not work till 11 o'clock? Cause I know Scott and I are sitting going, wait a minute. I hustled. We hustled. Yeah. I mean, I definitely hustled too, but like, there's no manager saying, Hey, you're, you need to be here to show face because you're waiting for some project to get dropped on your desk. If I was doing that is because I knew there was a good deal we were chasing or was trying to hire someone and it was going to be worthwhile. And it also comes in waves, right? So like if you were putting in those hard couple of weeks, you knew that it was going to pay off later. Um, so yeah, I'm, this is by no means easy. If you want something easy, do not go to an early stage company. I think, I think though, understanding that I, I wasn't really looking forward to that CRO path. Like I worked under two awesome CROs. He brought in a uh, kind of professional CEO. And when I, when I started to see what the CROs were doing, I was like, ah, I really like what the founder's doing a lot more than what these CROs are doing. And I started to get more drawn to that path. And then I think that the second thing is just people talk about this, but I don't think people actually do it is removing the ego when someone's about to get hired above you. So I was a VP of sales. We brought in a CRO above me. I was excited. Like I was out over my skis. I, w- <laughs> I wish, I wish I could say like, Oh, I'm ready. I can do all this. But like, I don't think any of this stuff in SAS is rocket science, but if you haven't seen it once or twice, you're going to fuck up. Like you're, you're just going to make these mistakes no matter how smart you are. So when I had a new CRO coming coming in i was pumped would and, you be you know can i interrupt you would you yeah. have been as pumped if this was your fourth or fifth trip around the sun as a vp of sales yeah probably not um probably not if i thought i could do all of that yeah. but like look if they if they already want to top you like that's going to happen anyway so if you're bought in on the company long term you better learn how to be positive or it's not going to work anyway Although I do think it would be significantly harder, right? If I had three or four stops on my belt before this, I think it'd be crazy to say that's not true. So I want to, I'm going to have you, I'm going to go back for a while. So, wow. He doesn't look it, but he, he's not quite our age, but he's not as young as he looks. So um, question for you back at SAP, you were a sales engineer, which to me is a huge benefit in a lot of ways because it brings you that revenue side and the tech side, right? Together as you built your career. Yeah. What are the pieces that I think salespeople don't understand that the the sales engineer bring to the sales process aside from explaining the technology, right? Like where, how do, how do I as a sales rep better leverage my relationship with my sales engineer? Maybe that's the, the right question. I think the, the first thing is just like understanding what is the sales engineer responsible for? What is the AE responsible for? Right. And I have a lot of thoughts on like why I think SE is a really good way to get into sales and sales leadership more so than even the traditional PDR path. I think it's easier to learn how to prospect than it is to give really good demos and have value conversations. So like, I think that path is a good one. 
I think working with your SE, the key is understanding like who's responsible for what and how are we going to get to the next step, right? The best SEs I've worked with, they were sales oriented, mapping out the org and understanding, okay, this is how I'm going to build a relationship with these two or three stakeholders. This is how you're going to have the business conversation with these three or four stakeholders. This is how I'm going to help do some requalification and I can step in and talk about internal processes we have to make sure we're, we're following the right steps. But I think it's like understanding exactly who's responsible for what and the key steps that need to happen in a deal and understanding you're part of a deal team, right? And, and understanding who's owning what and then going to make a plan and do it. The best SEs are the ones that are like creatively trying to win the deals as much as you are and understand that like they're doing some part technical validation, but they're also selling and it's a different level of selling depending on you know, who on the other side they're trying to map to. So how do you, how do you improve that relationship? So often I see with the companies I work with, and may, maybe it's just the companies I work with because they're earlier stage, the SE is seen as the, you know, the demo person sometimes and the AE or even the sales leader, I don't think values them in the way you just described, which I think is hundred percent accurate. What do we do? If people are like, oh, I really like what Todd said. I need to figure that out. You know, you know, who as a sales leader, as a CRO, is it my job to then go map that out? Is it the SE and the AE to try and figure it out together? You know, how do I better improve that relationship? Yeah, I think the I think it's the sales leader's job to say who is responsible for what, and the best AE should have a big chunk of that, right? They should influence exactly that ownership. I think the way you build the relationship is like, look, there's going to be some deals where an AE is going to make a lot of money on and SC likely isn't going to get the same upside. I think you need to make sure that that doesn't go go unnoticed, whether that's, you know, buying them a dinner or a gift for their time, but more importantly, just making sure they're getting the recognition in the org. Hey, every single time we want a deal, right? There's a one channel. The best reps are always taking the least amount of credit and giving the most amount of credit to the SE. Right. Like, I think that is just an easy thing to make sure that, hey, we're building a relationship. I'm valuing your work just as much as, as you know, you're valuing mine. And I think the other way, aside from recognition, is keeping them involved in the process. Some people are like, great, we got the technical win. I got everything. No, 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 no. Those people want to stay involved. The hungriest SEs want to help get that deal across and want to stay involved. And then lastly, bringing the stuff they're learning into other parts of the organization. Right. So, like, you get a lot of SCs that are really good in deals, but aren't great at, you know, synthesizing feedback to product team, help them do that, right? Make them look like a hero to the product team. I think that goes same thing on like what they're learning. How are they giving that information to marketing? I think that's how you start to build that relationship and make them look like the hero, not just the AEs getting awarded when the deal closes. Team that comes to you trying to get new meetings right now, do something different, stand out somehow. Is there anything that you're, you've hit upon in the last month or two that is outside of the box, that is, that is possibly different than Richard and I and our listeners have heard before or, or an opposite take on something? What do you got for us? 
I don't know if there's anything opposite or different. I think that one of the biggest thing, especially for your listeners that are at companies a little further along, like, you know, above hundred employees plus, which most are, I'd imagine. I think the biggest thing is tapping into how execs actually prospect. I think most execs have the biggest networks and tap into it the, the smallest of anyone. They're so busy driving organizational alignment and OKRs and hiring. It's like, why aren't they spending more time prospecting? I wrote a, something on the Champify blog about this, which is like, how do you actually get this to happen? What's the cadence? How do you do all the pre-work for them? I think that's the biggest thing that people don't spend enough time on. Um, otherwise, I think about pipeline mix is like, you have people, you know, people think about it as like, do I write this subject line or what cadence or how many calls versus email? Like every buyer is different. You'll figure that thing out. But I think you have to think about your prospecting mix as, okay, how much is spent in different areas? And what I mean by that are how much are spent going after deals that we've educated, but lost and nurturing. Like, I don't think people put enough thought around that. Um, how much are we doing through the investor network? And do we actually have a play to go and do this? Does someone own all the grunt work to make sure we're tapping through this? Does everyone have a program, whether it's with Champify, competitor, or even someone just owning it internally to track all the repeat buyers? Every single sales rep I know has sold some, this, uh, their product to people multiple times as they move across companies, yet no one owns this process, right? And like over time, what I think is that the, the creative stuff, investors, execs, repeat buyers, just makes the traditional cold outbound be a smaller chunk. It's not going to go away, but it should, you should say, how can I make that a smaller, smaller chunk of what we're doing? Richard, how many people have we resold to who moved on from one company to the next, let's say? Probably a lot more than I followed. And God damn it, Richard, you're supposed to be tracking this stuff. Didn't you hear what Todd said? I, I heard I heard him. And it's interesting because I even have a CRM, Scott. Do you follow this? Um, no, this, and is, this falls under your purview of what you're supposed to be doing. I got one more question for you, Todd. And then uh, I'll go to Richard. We got to shockingly start to wrap up pretty soon. You're in the opposite uh, side of the table now, not the VP of sales seat. You're in the founder's seat. What do, you, what do you want to tell VPs of sales that they don't know, that they don't think about now that you're in this seat? What should I know as a VP of sales about the founder that I might not if I've never sat there before? Good question. I think that a lot of time as a VP of sales spend with the founder, spend with the CEO, there tends to be a lot around hiring a lot around forecasting, right? Which like you have to be good at bottom line to be the VP of sales and do it well. I think the VP of sales should spend some more time thinking about what else the CEO is thinking about and where, that, where the VP of sales can help, right? Because like it goes in waves in terms of what's most important, but I think the VP of sales can help with a lot of things the founder's doing that the founder, like for instance, some of the thought leadership stuff, like. I think VP of sales know who the influence are, know who the people that they need to be engaging. Like, can you take some of that off your CEO and founders plate? A big thing. Customer advocacy programs, um, things, things of that nature. Um, compensation stuff, right? Sales, sales leaders are in the hardest conversations because the, the best sales reps are aggressive and usually know how to get, negotiate well. And oftentimes, like the way the company is thinking about comp, lags behind what the VP of sales is already hearing, they should have a bigger part in those comp discussions. 
they should help the CEO figure out what's the philosophy on comp. Like most, C most CEOs and founders, I think, don't have a way of like, we want to comp at X percent on the cash side and Y percent on the, on the equity side. And we are comfortable having a rep make 600 grand. Like, I think all of them should be explicit decisions that the VP of sales should help the CEO make. And if there's more you can take off their plate, the other stuff will get easier because your relationship's getting better. Scott, do you want to take all of. that stuff off your plate to not? <laughs> I was going to say, how many of those conversations have you been a part of? Me? What ones exactly? Richard, how many of those uh, conversations that Todd was mentioning have you actually? Uh, well, when doing the startup world, that it was always my job to build the comp plan. The problem was that, and I think the flip side of that is that founders need to understand that um, you can't treat sales as, you know, a government bidding contract. Let's see what the lowest salary we can get away with and not pay people and try to make them happy. And I feel like that's sort of the flip side of this conversation. Um, yeah. So I've been a part of those, but I, these days I don't do comp, um, but it's easy because we already know what's happening. Like we're, the compensation is going to keep going through the roof regardless of the recession. So there's just not enough human bodies behind those leaving their jobs. We already see it in other industries. I don't know why we would expect it to be different in sales. Um, and I think that's a hard piece for the VCs and the founders to come to terms with because it means they're going to get a little bit less equity if it blows up. So that's a that's a big piece. So that's my answer to that question. I have uh, uh, a, one question for you, but then we're going to flip it to you and let you ask a question too. Um, but quickly, um, thank you so much to Outreach, Sendoso, and Scratchpad for supporting us. Um, by the way, we love all these founders. Um, these, these are the founders who, um, they get it in a lot of ways. And I think it's through the school of hard knock that they learned it. Uh, so obviously, please go support our sponsors. We appreciate their support. Um, why do you think, so this is my question, and I know we're being time sensitive, but why is the average tenure still 16 months for a VP of sales, but a VP of marketing can last two and a half to three years? I think they're just the easiest person to say, hey, they were responsible for the number they failed. It's on them, right? And I think they're the scapegoat in a lot of ways. And I think it's just the easiest thing to do. And then the VCs will say, hey, there's someone better coming behind. Like you give the same person the same things to work with and the chance of them succeeding is going to be the same outcome. I think so many pe people think the number is on the salesperson. And a lot of times marketing doesn't have that same scrutiny. And I think you're going to keep seeing those same results until that starts to change. Yeah. I, I see it as based on the way you described it is it's like not everybody, but I know a lot of people, we all, I certainly was this, we all dated the same person. You know, it was just a different shell earlier in my dating life, like until I finally realized what was important in terms of someone as a partner. Um, and it becomes that copycat league of, well, this is what we've seen in the past, so let's do it again. But um, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm glad to hear you see it as the scapegoat piece too. So whoever your VP of sales is should go listen to this and make sure they hold that against you one day. <laughs> so, <laughs> just kidding. So uh, Todd, um, you know, what question you want to ask us? Anything we can support you with? Yeah, I think the thing that I'm still trying to figure out is like, 
who are some of the CEOs and founders that are doing the best work when it comes to thought leadership, that are doing the best when it comes to owning the conversation for their respective spaces, right? I think that's a really important thing. And over time, like what I think is happening is it's getting easier to start a company. I think the technical gaps and moats are getting smaller and narrower. And I think the people that can grab the most attention and have the most thought leadership and people that want to listen to you are the people that are going to win. So I think my question for you guys is like, both of you have built really big audiences, right? With, I think like being on brand and authentic. So like, what do you think people like me can learn from people like you or CEOs and founders that have also done this really well? So I'll, I'll take my first, the first stab at it. Um, there are a couple things. One, I think a lot of the, the really good founders um, actually lead with human thought leadership and humanity. And they might talk about things that are not necessarily thought leadership to the industry, because I think people draw that connection, right? They want to see what kind of person is Todd, so to speak. And they find a balance between that and thought leadership of the problem you're solving, right? When they're talking about the problem they're solving, it's for me about painting the picture of pain. And, you know, it's kind of like the Tylenol commercial. It's my latest is, you know, if you think about a commercial for Tylenol, you think about some image of a head, someone's got their hands up against it and it's the color red in the front of their head. That's a picture of pain. And it's immediate. They don't show you the aftermath Right. And if you think about all, you probably say that about a lot of drug commercials, right? Like they're just pain, sorrow, sadness. Um, and so trying to make that as human as possible. So being human in the pain you solve, but then just being a human in terms of the way you see the world, I think is really important. Um, and that doesn't mean, I know, I know plenty of leaders and founders who have a different view of, you know, where it's like, look, I'm not here to, you know, build a company where you get to take as much vacation time as you want and you can work from anywhere. And, you know, maybe you can if you hit the number, but, you know, there are plenty of founders who are like, that's their authentic belief system. And I think they should put it out there. So, because then they're going to find those people who want to hustle. I'm here to help you hustle, grow your career, make help you make money, you know, and go from there. So, so those are, those are my immediate responses to that. Yeah, there's a couple of people that I, I think, have done a good job, but somebody who I think has maybe done the best job is Nick Maida from Gainsight. If you pay attention to him, I mean, he is the name, I think, at least associated with customer success still, <clears throat> which is what the software does and works is in, is in that industry and in that space. Um, he's also very much himself. You know, he takes lots of the risks for lack of a better word that other people would call him. You know, he does a lot of silly stuff, a lot of goofy stuff, fun stuff. He's also authentically like tweeting about how frustrated he is with the Pittsburgh Steelers, like very relatable, you know, kind of thing and has built a, a large following and brand. I think, you know, basically just being himself and not always talking about, you know, his product or whatever his main message is. Um, and those are the type of people for me to steal your word, like authentic. I think you said, um, that's what rings authentic to me. It's like, I don't expect Todd to only be 
on brand about Champify all day. In fact, that's pretty dull and boring. You know, I don't only want to hear about your business. <clears throat> You're actually going to earn my business by revealing a little bit about who you are um, in the process, I think, you know, and I, I've certainly tried to do that, um, you know, with my content, I feel like Richard has, you know, as well. Um, and I think that those people in the long term, hopefully they win and garner some respect on top of just winning. You know, there's a lot of people I think who do a good job of staying on brand with their message and they probably do quite well for themselves. But I know from behind the scenes, water cooler conversations, that the level of respect is a little bit different, you know? So food for thought on that. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I think, I, I think it matters too, because people get bored hearing about the same message and they want to know who you are as a person. Yeah. I think it's easy to be like, talk, sales, 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 champify, repeat buyers all day. And it's like, yeah. you know what? People want to know your story as well. I think that's so I think it's a good call. Yeah. Well, we, we appreciate you spending some time with us today, Todd. Good luck to you and uh, the team over at Champify. Richard? Yeah, Todd, great to meet you. Finally. So I appreciate the time and um, great to finally meet you. And um, yeah, that we'll edit out that VP of sales comment. So I'm just <laughs> No, we won't because we don't edit. But um, it was it was it was a little snarky. Sorry if I came off a little harsh on that one. So. No, no worries. Yeah. Awesome, right, guys. We'll see you later. Thank, Scott, Richard, thanks for having me on. Richard, great to meet you. Scott, we'll catch up soon. Take care. See ya. All right, bye.